Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, the PlayStation Modern Ocarina. Soon to be PlayStation. Actually, did you mod your original PlayStation? I modded the PlayStation 2 when it was early, early, early in the first mod. Yeah. that had 29 different tiny wires, and it wasn't just doing points on, you know, point traces that were on the PCB, but you, because it was so early, I had to do actual pins, tiny, tiny little pins on on the main, uh, whatever they call their CPU. So I definitely had modded the Xbox before that, which was a relatively easy mod for someone that solders. It, it freaked me out because at the time I could barely afford consoles. <laughs> well, on today's episode, we'll be chatting about hacking PlayStation 5s, an update on attackers exploiting a vulnerability in a password management application, and then the latest in the crackdown on ransomware. And with that, let's stop trying to stretch out our intro music and go ahead and roll on in. So let's start with another update on our favorite ongoing story. I feel like it was what? It wasn't last week. It was probably two weeks ago now where I promised this would be the last time we talked about this, but it uh, turns out that's not true uh, because last week, law enforcement agents in Poland, Romania, South Korea, and Kuwait arrested multiple people allegedly involved in distributing the R Evil and Gan Crab ransomware variants as part of a 17-nation law enforcement operation called Gold Dust. <laughs> Gold dust. By the way, huzzah. Before I make fun of names, huzzah. Good job, national law enforcement from so many nations. Yeah. I mean, honestly, good job. Uh, not so great a job on the name. Uh, <laughs> Gold dust. And sounds like a, a, a James Bond movie or maybe a James Bond criminal. I don't know. Sounds like an Austin Powers movie. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> that was just a perfect satirical James Bond. Exactly. But either way, like great job. So it seems like it's uh, most of Europe, Europool paired with the United States and a few others. Uh, interesting seeing Kuwait pop up in there. Uh, team seem to really be cracking down on ransomware and specifically going after distributors for R Evil and Gangrab and a few other variants as well. I wonder. Um, it's I guess uh, we tend to give certain figures we know credit just because they said something. But I think we've talked a few times about Biden. Was that a few weeks ago, too, when they actually had the international conference about cracking down on ransomware? It was about a month ago now. Yeah, so this happening shortly. I, I mean, perhaps this has been long running and happened way before that. But obviously, that sort of thing where you get nations together to fight something seems to be working. This sort of cooperation is doing the world good. 100%. Um, as part of the press release, Europool announced that they had also arrested three individuals back in February and April that were involved in distributing the R-Evil ransomware too. Um, so the suspects in Romania from this latest round of arrest uh, were allegedly responsible for 5,000 infections and around 500,000 euros in extortions. So a fair chunk of change, but I think like the last stat I saw was we're in like the tens of millions in successful extortions for our evil. So still a very small slice of the overall pie in terms of the folks picked up. Um, they also noted they had help from several private organizations too, beyond those law enforcement agencies like Bitdefender gave them some technical insights and helped with the decryption tools. Uh, McAfee helped uh, and KPN also helped with some technical expertise as well. So good on private companies helping out too. I know that's Absolutely. not... 
It's not completely out of the norm. Like Microsoft tends tends to help out with law enforcement with some domain takeovers all the time. Um, I'm sure like several others do as well. Even we have shared information with CISA. I mean, not about CUSP, but just about threats that have happened. So yeah, yep, it's good. Hundred percent. Um, so like honestly, really great job on the part of all of them. But this isn't. This doesn't mean that we're seeing the end of like our evil. Like for example, these are the affiliates that they are arresting. So our evil and many of these other ransomware services operate as a ransomware as a service operation where the developers just make the code, set up the infrastructure, maintain it. And it's the affiliates that are responsible for distributing it. So you're basically just cutting off, I don't know, a couple heads of the Hydra. Well, a few more can end up taking the place. I would I would off, uh, even say the tail. Like, I, I think I've said this before, that uh, the affiliates, whether they believe it or not, might be kind of the mules, like the developers of ransomware and the whole concept of ransomware as a service kind of gives them kind of like the kingpin in a mob organization gives them arm's length separation from the people that are really doing the dirty work. You know, the kingpin in, in any mob organization tends to never do any bad stuff himself directly, him or her. And there's all you've all seen the fictional movies about even the way they ask some of their people to do something is obscured with language and is more a a dog whistle, let us say. It would be great if this person died. <laughs> disappeared. Yes, disappeared, yeah. yes. Uh, and so, so yeah, and if you think about it, you know, why are they identifying the affiliates? It's because all the ransomware developers are doing are making this ransomware that's designed to do its malware job well and also designed to automatically have a wallet that takes a cut. And it's really the affiliates that are breaching companies. So if you think about how they're identifying the affiliates, but maybe the developers get away, it's because all the indicators of compromise, all the footsteps you would leave as you breach, that would be the the person doing the hacking to get the ransomware in, i.e. the affiliate, not the people that wrote this ransomware as a service. So yeah. That doesn't mean, I mean, it is still super illegal to develop ransomware. Like, just ask Mr. Marcus Hutchins about oh, for sure. the yeah. legality around creating malware and it, yeah. selling it. I'm not saying they're not actually criminal at all. I'm just saying that they are smartly getting someone else to do the work that leaves the biggest digital footprints that authorities can follow. Yeah. Although 100%. ultimately, the, you can still track the money. And so I, I, whenever they track the money, I do think at least the malware wallet that gets the, the RAS service to get paid to is probably their weakest point. And one of the other individuals in there, so the one that was picked up in Poland, uh, Mr. Yaroslav Asinski, a uh, 22-year-old Ukrainian national, was actually allegedly the individual responsible for the Kaseya attack as well. So the one for hacking... Uh, Kaseya VSA servers and distributing ransomware through there. So I honestly genuinely did not think that we would see anyone arrested and held accountable yeah, for name. that attack. Yeah, that is that is such an awesome, that's a, a very cool thing. Uh, although I'm sure it doesn't uh, lighten the pain that Kaseya and more importantly, all their customers had to go through. I think they probably feel very like they had some justice to know that the, the person that caused all that pain is... Um, being paid for, especially yep. since they also got decryption keys and some money back. If I re- no, that was cool. They did. Uh, no, they got six point one million dollars in funds of his that he obtained through that and or other attacks. I don't. I mean, I'm sure some individual organizations probably paid during that, but 
I know Kaseya themselves did not pay for the decryption key. Um, still interesting. Uh, also, last week, too, the State Department announced they're offering $10 million as a bounty for any information on our evil and dark side ransomware, uh, the developers themselves. So even though they're helping pick up these individual affiliates, they are still trying to get after the developers, too. The fact that they're offering $10 million bounty leads me to believe they actually don't have a whole lot of leads to go on for these, though. So I imagine we're still ways off from even identifying individuals, let alone potentially bringing them to justice. Probably too. true. I think you're right there. But at least it's at least, you know, <laughs> one of the things we see ransomware people doing is offering high values of money to insiders of a target just to get the ransomware in. So it's nice to see us turning that around because I am sure there's a lot of, you know, anyone <laughs> that's willing to break all kinds of laws to get a million dollars in ransom from someone would probably sell out his bosses for $10 million. So it uh, could be good. Also eat a little humble pie here. And sometimes I question whether when federal go governments say we're going to do these things and we have all these ideas to make ransomware better, it sometimes seems like empty words with not much delivery. And while again, there's many nations involved in this well beyond the US, it, it certainly seems like they're kind of living up to some of the promises and doing a decent job lately. They do. I mean, they are at least trying. And I mean, I don't think anyone ever accused them of not trying, but there does seem to be some actual results coming in, which is good. Um, I mean, they're we'll getting see how good. This goes. Yeah, they're getting good. It does seem like the gloves are coming off, though. Like we've seen a lot of hacking back from our own law enforcement. Uh, specifically with, I guess, infiltrating our evil and having that implant on their server that they even try to bring back online. And now there does seem to be this concerted effort across multiple countries to pick off some of these people that are distributing it. I mean, this alone isn't going to be enough to stop ransomware, though. Like, you can arrest as many people as you want, but I'm willing to bet there's thousands more ready to take their place and get a slice of the ransomware extortions. I, I like I agree with that. Botnets come back. Uh, we've always seen malware come back, but the the way to stop people is to a make sure they can't make that much money, or b show there's real consequences. One of the reasons botnets returned so often is while there were takedowns of the technology, they didn't. The, the threat actors were never caught, never prosecuted. They never had to pay a price for it. So I do think while technically anyone can redo ransomware as a service, a lot of code is still out there. The more and more criminals that actually get prosecuted and serve a very real penalty at least puts another, you know, right now it's pretty easy to get in ransomware because very few people ever go to jail from it, even if their ransomware gets shut down. If more people go to jail, you know, even the bad guy might think a little bit harder of, of who he or she targets or what they plan on doing. 100%. It'll it'll help. But yeah, it's going to take quite a bit more, yeah. I think. Criminals have existed since the, ex the, the beginning of time, so it won't totally go away. Yep. But maybe it will lighten volume. Still good news, though. Um, so moving on now, uh, this story actually kind of starts back in September, where back in mid-September, CISA published an alert of APT actors exploiting... Wait, a it's not September? I, I thought 2021 just started. <laughs> yeah i know we're almost done it's, it's with november this year. wait a second the year's almost over it's kind of okay. nuts i'm sorry oh, I keep going. time flies september. when you're locked in a quarantine hole <laughs> wait it's um, 2021 i thought we were still in 2019 yeah. have i been away from the office that long 
<laughs> Sorry. What a, Sorry what to remind you guys. So far. A downer. Yeah. Uh, anyways. So back in mid-September, CISA published an alert warning of APT actors exploiting a, uh, an authenticated bypass, <clears throat> a authentication bypass vulnerability in the Zoho Manage Engine 80 self-service password management software. Uh, in their alert, they were saying they noted that the uh, the attackers were dropping web shells and then using their access to move laterally on victim networks. Basically, you might have this enterprise grade password management system deployed on your network. In order to access it, you need to expose part of it to the internet so that remote users can access and potentially pull down their password databases. And then through this vulnerability, attackers were able to exploit it, drop a web shell, and then use that as basically a, a jumping point to go hit the rest of your network. Um, so last week, Palo Alto's research team published their analysis of a separate unrelated APT uh, that began identifying and attacking servers using the same vulnerability right after that alert went out. Uh, so in Palo Alto's post, they said on September 17th, the day after that CISA alert, uh, this brand new actor uh, began using leased infrastructure in the U.S. to scan hundreds of vulnerable organizations across the Internet. And then on September 22nd, began exploitation attempts, which continued into early October. Um, all in all, they identified at least nine global victims across technology, defense, healthcare, education, and energy industries. Um, and in this case, the attackers deployed the Godzilla web shell, so a specific web shell on the hosts on all of them, as well as uh, this new backdoor that we'll talk about in a bit called NG Lite on a smaller subset, uh, both of which are publicly available on GitHub if you decide you want to be a criminal one day and go pick it up, or if you want to go see how Researcher. they work. Yeah, yeah, you might use it in red teaming. Real quick question here, because I'm sure uh, we should finish the full thing, but we'll probably get into a discussion of this. When CISA published the alert, a warning of this, was that authentication bypass vulnerability still unpatched, or had a patch been released? It had been released at the time of that update, but as we know, a patch available doesn't equate yeah. to... I just wanted to, it, it, we have some further discussion we'll talk about later there. Uh, I just wanted to, it, I, I think my, my point is there is a reason where you can still tip things off and it doesn't just apply to CISA. It's, when, it's why there's a, a vulnerability window you have for every single patch release that ever happens fixing something big. Uh, but it would have been even worse. I, I mean, if they warned and there wasn't a, a, a mitigation factor because not only could the attacker obviously realize there is a flaw that copycats could use, but there wouldn't be much you could do about it. I mean, let's let's chat about that for a sec before digging into some of these web shells and stuff. So the patch was available September 6th. Uh, P CISA put out their alert on the 16th, so 10 days after, basically saying, hey, this patch is available. We're seeing people hack it. Update your stuff as quickly as possible. Like, it's a good idea to put out that alert by drawing attention to the fact that you need to make sure you're patching your systems I absolutely, case. I absolutely agree. But actually, what I wanted to to point out here is this is something you need to think about every Microsoft patch day, every Adobe patch day, regardless if CISA is alerting on APT actors using it in the wild. Anytime there's a Microsoft patch day, if there's like any nine vulnerabilities that's remote, unauthenticated, or or user assisted attacks. I suspect that criminals are paying attention to patches, just the release, as much as us to fix them, because that is their, we've talked about it before, they can easily do diffs on some of the DLL libraries updated. That tells them that 
hey, now I now have new information that can help me find and reverse this vulnerability that was not publicly known before. And I think that that speaks to your point. What I'm trying to get at is as soon as a patch is out, you have a vulnerability window, you know, because you there's a, especially if it's a, a, a patch for something that's known by nobody, it's just known by the vendor and the researcher, no good guy or bad guy other than that knew of it. Once that patch comes out, you're telling all the hackers the flaw exists and there's ways for them to reverse it, like in this case where some other actor said, oh, that's a good idea. I know it exists. I'm going to figure out how to use it too because it's going to take a while for people to patch it. So it's just encouragement whenever we... Patching's hard, a lot of complexity, but the, the whole point of trying to apply it fast is not just to protect from a vulnerability you just used for. It's because as soon as the patch is released, I think it's starting a timer that attack bad guys are actually learning how to exploit the flaw. And even if it was something not exploited before, you know, it may be something that becomes exploited very quickly because because of the patch release, really, in some ways. Yeah, hundred percent. Like that's why I wanted to ch t uh, chat about this because like. CISA was doing a great job of letting people know about this, but it basically, again, drew attention to it where now other people are like, hey, that looks pretty easy to exploit. Let's see what we can hit on it. And like you said, Microsoft's a great example of that. Like with the, the proxy logon exchange vulnerabilities earlier this year, it was basically like the patch was already too late. They were being actively exploited before then, but they had to quickly put out this out-of-band patch, draw attention to it to get people to update as quickly as possible, which drew other threat actors to basically copy it and start using it as well. To the point where within like 24 hours, if you hadn't updated, it was probably too late for your server. And my argument is, well, it looks like this threat actor, and just based on the timing, we're assuming they reacted more to the CISA alert. If I understand the timing right, Microsoft had actually patched this, was it a few weeks before the CISA alert? Uh, Zoho, and, the company had patched it. Uh, Zoho had, I'm sorry, sorry, Zoho had. And frankly, for any threat actors that are really on it, they could have done this just by the Zoho patch too. I mean, maybe it didn't give a ton of details, but it at least every time any company patches something and mentions a security flaw, attackers can quickly look. If it's a product they have and have targeted before, they, they again, just diff what's uh, in the patch versus what they had. So uh, yes, I, I agree with you. CISA tipped them off. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that countdown starts even before some third party makes the uh, the flaw even more apparent. It starts literally when the patch is out. Yeah, or even when like the CVE is published, kind of drawing attention to it as to well. Some like, this was a yeah, 9.8 on the CVSS score. I, so I, I will say the difference with the CVE is it has no detail, so they just know of a flaw. The reason the patch is different is they still may have no technical written detail, but they have a binary that they can compare to start to find you know, the CV tends to be pretty abstract uh, at the beginning anyways. So yeah, I, I, you're, you're still right. The CV itself is really when you know something exists, but it's you think about how much information they need, need to know to find it. And I feel like the patch itself, if, if it's not something that's disclosed and in, in written about somewhere, the patch is really one of the big points where suddenly there's a lot more information available to bad guys to figure it out. 100%. Um, so in this case, they were dropping a couple of web shells. That Godzilla one I mentioned, again, they're all on GitHub if you want to take a look at them too. The Godzilla one is a pretty basic web shell. Like it just uses HTTP post requests to issue commands to it. 
It's got a little bit of uh, obfuscation in there to try and hide its activity from basic network IDS systems. Uh, the second one that they deployed on just a few victims, though, was actually kind of interesting. So it's called NG Lite. They actually used a slightly modified version of it, and it's less of a web shell and more of a backdoor. And that instead of like being in a, a web directory where you can submit a post request to it, it actually hooks into this new protocol that I just discovered uh, while researching this. I'm sure some blockchain nerds out there will slap me and say this has been around for a while, but it's called New Kind of Network or NKN. Uh, and they use that for its command and control communications. So NKN, it's basically the blockchain equivalent of a peer-to-peer -peer protocol. Um, so like think the, the BitTorrent style protocols that you're probably used to. In this case, uh, nodes can join up into this network and each one gets its own ID. You can issue requests to various nodes by just addressing it to their ID instead of their actual IP address. So again, it's all basically distributed communications in this case, which helps mask the attacker's identity helps mask their location where at most you would potentially know their node ID. So, you know, the attacker is one, two, three, four, five, six, and they're sending a command to seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 or whatever. Um, so interesting seeing these kind of novel protocols and tools being built into command and control now is I assume a form of evasion. Uh, it does all work over traditional HTTP or I guess HTTPS communications. And so it's not, as simple as just blocking whatever port it's using in this case. Um, but I don't know. Uh, a yet another area where blockchain is improving our day, I suppose. <laughs> in this case, helping malware yeah. stay hidden. By the way, this is totally, it wasn't one of our talking points, but I, I'm kind of interested in all the, like, like I think we all know GitHub is a repository that many folks use, and there's a lot of, I always interpret it more as researcher malicious code, you know, tools for red teaming and, and attack tools. But I always assume it's mostly researchers using uh, GitHub because, you know, often we write, researchers write red teaming tools to show an example of something so that it can be fixed. Uh, and, and besides these, you know, web shells being all over the place on GitHub, I'm, I'm writing about cookie marketplaces and a lot of it starts with malware that is actively grabbing cookies and keeping them updated off your computer. Those are all over GitHub too. And it turns out whoever wrote them, whether it was the bad guy or a researcher who wrote them first, they're clearly ones that threat actors use. And it it surprises me though, because they're public. Anyone can look at them. It's like, to me, it's almost threat actor bad OPSEC. Why would you want to use a component that's publicly available on GitHub for anyone you know, I know it's a great source code repository if you're actually trying to be a bad guy writing code together with a team. Maybe it's wonderful to use it. But I, I mean, the fact that you and I can go and get so much information about it also means we can probably get a lot of information to help try to at least detect it by various security controls. So it's just a random thought of, like, I guess if they're just using the stuff researchers made for bad reasons, yeah. But if I were a threat actor, I certainly wouldn't want to use the exact code that anyone could see on a public source code repository. I mean, yeah, 100%, I get your point. But at the same time, like, Mimikatz is on GitHub. That, yeah, like, yeah. Like and we, that, these, I mean, that's the that's the used thing. by every like, attacker under the sun. Metasploit like. for that that matter. So I, I guess the, the explanation is bad guys aren't writing the code. <laughs> They're using things researchers have used to prove things for malicious purposes. 
So I, that doesn't necessarily mean I think that should go away as a concept, but maybe we ought to think about <laughs> uh, for any research team, we research tool, good guys, right? We should also give ways to catch it very quickly and easily to every security company out there. I don't know. I mean, I've got like probably 60 repositories forked under my GitHub account that are yeah, all me red team I've, tools. So I've, everyone I see, I add to mine as well. I like mean, all those cookie stealers I mentioned before. <laughs> yeah. So I, I get it. And I think you're right. Like they're, I mean, the, the issue is like we could know the source code for something that doesn't make it easy to block that without blocking a whole bunch of other stuff. Like that's half the point, I guess, is that like sometimes it's really difficult to write a, a signature or a rule or something to catch a, a piece of well-crafted malware because they design it in a way where it looks just like something legitimate and you can't block it without that collateral damage. And at the end of the day, your users are going to complain if suddenly half of their applications get blocked by their endpoint AV software, for example. So I guess just what the volume is making me think, Mark, is I think you and me both probably agree that for the longest in the security industry, I actually believe the legality of researchers being able to write and use these tools for red teaming is important. And I think the publishing of them is good for the security industry to understand and learn how they work. So I've, I, 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 in the past and probably still even now, don't want to put any barriers to that. But it just seems I cannot ignore the fact that is it really good that the industry has made them so accessible? Because, you know, it used to be, oh, bad guys shouldn't use this much. We know them. We wrote them. They'll probably write that. It seems the majority of what they do is just reuse. <laughs> no, so, so as much as I hate to say it, I, while I don't want to ban them, I don't want laws against it, it we, I just feel like we have to think about this as an industry, that they're actually using the things we're doing with the intention to help security against us, <laughs> if, if that's true, if, if they are mostly researcher-produced tools. I mean, I think Microsoft, the owner of GitHub, is actively moving towards kind of clamping down on some of that. Like they, they did already that had their in one updated case. policy yeah. earlier this year. Uh, and their direct actions for the proxy logon uh, attack. Like they're taking down proof of concept code for vulnerabilities now when they decide that it's for the better good for it to not exist on GitHub. Um, Such a great line for me too, because as soon as you say that though, I don't want proof of, you know, I, I, it, it's such a gray line, I guess is all I'm saying. While, while I see why Microsoft's doing that in some ways, encourage it in certain cases, I also don't want to say someone should have the right to take it all down because they're good guys that do use it. Anyways, complex subject, way too gray, way too right on the line there. I don't know, Corey, let's put you on the spotlight. What do you think the answer is to this? Do we take it down? Do we put it up? <laughs> You're in charge now. and We're going to hold your feet to the coals anytime something goes wrong because of your decision. I don't want to be in charge. <laughs> <laughs> I think in the long run, it does more good. I, I mean, I honestly, the reason I believe in open source security and gen, I, I like I'm, I'm making up a term here, open source security. But the reason I believe in transparency on how exactly attacks work is to educate everyone involved from the developer who might do a small coding issue that makes a problem to the security vendors that, well, you can't always block it, at least understand it enough to find, you know, I, I think without it, you, you're not teaching the, the community that's trying to catch it and inadvertently making the mistakes to allow it to happen. You're not teaching them anything. I'm and the true solution that. is to teach them how to fix the problem 
so that there aren't tools that can exploit you know technical issues so I, I think we, I think you have to make it transparent so people can learn but it just really sucks that you know it's like a criminal coming into your own house finding your gun to protect yourself that you maybe didn't lock up properly and shooting you with your own gun well, that's terrifying <laughs> But I no, hope that never happens. You, you get my bad metaphor. <laughs> yes, I'm with you. Like, I agree with you entirely, I think. And that, like, yes, if we say banned malicious code from GitHub and GitLab.com, it would probably lower or at least reduce the ability for some, like, script kitty hackers to be able to get their hands on it and try and attacks. But it's not going to stop the actual skilled attacker from finding it elsewhere on other sites that are outside of, like, U.S. jurisdiction um, or just shared on underground forums. Like, it's not going to stop it. All it's going to do is per make it more difficult for the, the white hats, the researchers to analyze the same code and it, it will make it more, more difficult too for the, the less sophisticated, let's say dumb hackers. But to your point, the real sophisticated ones, while, while we're kind of saying it seems like the majority is actually using the easy to get good guy tools no matter what, there still is that upper 1% of sophisticated attackers that don't do that. And almost everything they release is new, at least from a code, you know, a malware perspective. So I think you're right. It, it, it While it might get rid of some of the script kitties, it means the good guys can't defend themselves. And meanwhile, the nation states and super high-end criminal hackers that are not using this code and still finding all the bad stuff themselves will have an easier time. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I still don't see Microsoft taking down Mimikatz anytime soon, even though Mimikatz specifically targets, targets Windows systems. So I guess that's going to be our... And by the way, Mimikatz probably, I mean, Mimikatz uh, targets a lot of old types of authentication mechanisms. And to be fair, Microsoft has over the years reinvented their authentication basic, like past the hash shouldn't exist anymore if you use more modern. Uh, yes, there's Kerberos ticketing issues too, but... Mimikatz has helped them improve their their less than their their I don't want to say subpar, but maybe it was their subpar authentication into what they have now. Yeah. So 100%. it upped their game. I guess that will be our canary in the coal mine though. If suddenly Mimikatz disappears off GitHub. We know that there's a drastic policy <laughs> shift going on over at Microsoft. Yep. Um, mm. so moving on now uh, to a fun story, at least I think from Corey's and my standpoint here. Um over the last weekend, the hacking group the known as fail overflow uh, tweeted out the apparent decrypted firmware of a PlayStation five and followed up by claiming they had attained the secret or the symmetric root keys for the console. Um, so fail overflow, they've been around for well over a decade now. Uh, they were the ones that discovered the unpatchable exploit in the early Nintendo switch editions that allowed unsigned code execution. Uh, thanks again for their help in letting me resell my original switch for significantly more than I actually bought it for. So I could buy the animal crossing one, um, as well as the private keys for the PlayStation three, uh, where 11 years ago, one of them actually ended up getting sued by Sony over that too. Um, so in this case, they, they tweeted out showing the decrypted firmware from PlayStation five said they'd obtained the symmetric encryption keys off the system. Um, which in video game speak, there's a lot of encryption that goes on a lot of different keys. Um, these symmetric ones are used for basically encrypting the firmware on the device itself, encrypting the game files, for example, so that you can, the console can read it and then actually run it. It's different than the asymmetric keys that are also involved for code signing, where 
in order for a game to run on the PlayStation 5, it has to be cryptographically signed with Sony's private key, basically. By the way, and, you, you specifically say PlayStation 5 in this sent before this story but do know that i i think the xbox and nintendo this this whole idea of an asymmetric key that the software you know the disc or the cartridge or digital down it, it they have different mechanisms but they all do the same thing consoles have become very secure and they all have been using this code signing both for booting the the hardware itself and for making sure they're playing they're using legitimate code on the the console yeah, it's actually really difficult to get a game or even an update to a game published on consoles because it has to go through this whole vetting process where you submit the code or the patch, Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo, whatever, validate it. They look for potential bugs or vulnerabilities in it that could affect their system. And then once they've confirmed that, then they sign it with their key and give it back to you for distribution. And only those signed games are allowed to run on the system. So in this case, they didn't get a hold of those asymmetric keys. So uh, this doesn't mean that they can now you can run unsigned code or your own homebrew or whatever on the PlayStation 5, but it does kind of open the door for additional research and analysis that could enable that. Like prior to this, the firmware was all encrypted, games were all encrypted, and believe it or not, it's really dang difficult to run firmware analysis on something that's encrypted. And so now they can view the the, the firmware binary in, I guess, plain text or at least unencrypted form. It allows them to debug it and potentially look for vulnerabilities that let them get past that unsigned or that signed code uh, restriction. Yeah, they can now reverse it and maybe find a new flaw. Yeah, and this is honestly pretty cool. Like I, console hacking, game hacking is a pretty near and dear subject to me. That's basically how I mean I got my roots in hacking and security. Like I remember back in the days using like copies of splinter cell or mech assault where they had vulnerabilities and how they handle save, save files, files that enabled that yeah. that soft hacking uh, or soft modding your xbox and using that to open the door for hardware mods it's pretty cool well you've heard me say it before but i still think gaming consoles were leaders in hardware and software security long before everything we've become used to today and because of that, so so like you, first, I just have a personal interest in it. You know, uh, I, the truth is, why do most people do this piracy? That's not something that's legal and cool. I don't love to support it. But I always loved, before Sony officially supported it on one PS2, I loved being able to suddenly gain control of my console and run Linux on my PlayStation just because I could. And it took this kind of hacking to do. So b beyond just the cool personal stuff, I think everyone should look at console back and forth hacking between the vendors and the attackers as the future that before mobile phones existed. We all know that mobile phones have secure boots. They have security enclaves, whether they're TPMs or Apple's you know, uh, vault or whatever they call it. All that was on consoles way before a desktop even thought of it because the mobiles were doing that before even des traditional desktops were. And so in a strange way, console manufacturers fight against piracy, force them to be really be the first types of vendors to not just focus on OS security, but hardware and OS security together with the system that, with this closed ecosystem, that allows you to only run apps that are vetted and are known to be the right thing for this, this platform. And really, 
phone security kind of evolved from that. Mobile devices, consoles, they, they were doing this back as far as the PlayStation 2. Even the PlayStation 1 had some of this. You know what I mean? And the Xbox One. So it was before smartphones. I mean, maybe the Nokia type phones were out there, but it was before smartphones got really secure. And even smartphones started using secure boot before traditional computers, in my opinion, even though, of course, servers and computers do some of this now. So to me, consoles are among the most secure hardware on the planet, in my opinion, maybe other than very customized security focused things like HMAC hardware or something. They use every hardware OS encryption, you know, local keys, tricks that we've figured out as a security industry to make sure you only boot things that are perfect the right OS and you only run things that you want. And so to me, like you say, I just find this fascinating because it is getting harder to hack them because they're adding new types of security controls reimagined earlier. So seeing this to me is just watching the future of what's going to come to computers and phones too, as far as defenses. I hope yeah, that 100%. long soapbox didn't bore the whole audience <laughs> at this point. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yeah, 100%, like this is, it's kind of like the forefront of computer, uh, at least application security in it is what we're seeing. And but that said, like, like you mentioned piracy, that is the 100 pound gorilla in the room and that all these console manufacturers are obviously trying to shut this down as much as possible. Like I mentioned that lawsuit 11 years ago, where as part of the the settlement for that, one of the, the previous fail overflow members, George Holtz, was actually banned from hacking any Sony products ever again. Uh, because he was distributing this this toolkit for basically uh, getting past the PlayStation 3's encryption in that case. Uh, we saw, we actually talked about it a few months ago, Team Executor, uh, the mod chip manufacturers for the original Xbox and Nintendo DS and Switch. Uh, they're currently on trial. I mean, not because they made those chips, but because it turns out they were also advocating for piracy websites and even sending yeah. them up in some cases. Themselves. A lot of the groups that do these hacks, their excuse is that, you know, this isn't for piracy, it's for homebrew so you can run your own code, which is a true possibility. But when the, the group actually has strong ties to some of the ROM sites and stuff like that too, it's a little harder for them to defend that, I, I guess is what you're saying, right? <laughs> which, I mean, from the business standpoint, it makes sense for them to secretly back some of those sites because that is what drives, I'd say, the majority of the That is business. definitely why people buy them. I mean, let's not pretend otherwise, at least when they're young. I do think as an older person that likes to pay pay the the makers, the creators of things, I do still, still sometimes like to jailbreak devices and run my own code now for no piracy reason. So I'm not saying that everyone that's ever done this is a pirate. But it, it it's it's impossible to like the the huge majority. That's their main use case. Yeah, but either way, like no custom homebrew on the PlayStation Five yet. But this is basically the first major step towards that. And I mean, these these failover ad guys are pretty dang good at what they do. And I imagine now that they have access to the unencrypted firmware, it's just a matter of time until we see homebrew running on this honestly really dang powerful system. Yep. And whichever side you want, whether or not you want to unlock the PS5's hardware to legal, but things Sony's locking you out of, or you're just a defender that wants to see hardware to be secure enough to withstand this type of hacking, it's a win-win either way. Because 
there's going to be a reaction to this. This is a cat and mouse game. Uh, every every executor chip or whatever that sometimes they found very deep that the flaws were in actual hardware pieces that couldn't easily be changed. But often OS and firmware updates do fix some of these flaws that they find and suddenly they can't get to this symmetric key to decrypt the firmware when Sony releases another release. So either there's a positive to this no matter what and that Sony will see the technique used and is probably going to be rethinking some new security defenses. Yep, 100%. Uh, if you don't already follow Fail Overflow, and the O is a number zero, by the way, on Twitter. Uh, never would have guessed should. that. These type of people, they never use leak speak. That's, that's no, gosh, right? No, of course not. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, definitely give them a follow, though. Now is going to be a pretty interesting cool. time. And I guess this is really only applicable to the few people in the world that have actually managed to get their hands on a PlayStation 5. But still, uh, cool research going forward. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.